Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, and welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. Today, we are coming together for a book talk about Reading Above the Fray by Julia Lindsay. Melissa, I know this has become one of our new favorite books this summer, so I can't wait to talk about it with you. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think these book talks are becoming one of my favorite new things, I know. too. It's really fun. <laughs> it's actually a great fun. way to and motivator to read the book like really thoroughly and then be prepared to talk about it together. <laughs> That's true. We have to be really prepared. <laughs> yeah. But this book, I love this book. This book, I feel like I read it in a day or two. So any educators out there thinking, yeah. oh, I don't know if I can add another book to my book list this summer. This is <laughs> definitely an easy read which I think is a relief <laughs> for many of us. <laughs> yeah, I agree. We talked to, we talked about that with Julia and she said like she did that on purpose, right? So that mm-hmm. this was accessible, easy, useful, not, uh, I, I, they all have their place, right? Like some books we want to dive in so we can like super build our background knowledge. And yeah, we, we need that sometimes, but sometimes we want just like, okay, what can I try tomorrow? <laughs> and that's this book, right? This book is a full of what can I try tomorrow in my classroom? Yes. I wrote down in my notes, I wrote down the two words that I loved the most in this book were efficient and effective. And then I'll add practices. Like it was just very easy to read, to digest, and then to think, okay, what could I try tomorrow? And I love, love, love how I know we're going to talk about the structure of the chapters, but I love how Julia has the do it tomorrow section, but also the essential instructional swap. Like what am I doing that may not be as effective as as something else? And what could I be doing? And then she walks you through how to do that swap. And sometimes there's one, sometimes there's two, sometimes there's three at the end of each chapter. It's so helpful. I love that. That's my favorite part. I think I'd, like anyone in the classroom <laughs> is going to be like, oh my gosh, this is my favorite part of the book. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But mm-hmm. I'm going to back you up a little bit. Back it up. <laughs> to make sure people know what this book is all about, right? Because Julia wants us to tell you all and wants to, everyone to know that this is about something very specific with reading, right? So we know that reading is super complex, has a ton of things that she could have written books about, but this is about decoding. Right, so the, yes, it says it on the cover. I yes. know you held the book up, but it <laughs> the sub, says the subtitle <laughs> is reliable. reliable re- oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Reliable <laughs> research-based routines for developing decoding skills. Right. So it is. About I felt like one we should just part. We should have read it together at the same time. We should have. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> we'll be we'll ready. We'll plan that better. <laughs> but I think that's just really important for people to know that like this is not going to be about everything you do in your reading block. It will not be every part of reading from phonemic awareness to comprehension. It, it is one specific part, and that's decoding. For sure. And today we're going to talk about our, I think, our favorite parts of the book. But we're also going to talk about a specific chapter that we didn't talk about a lot with Julia. We do talk about a lot of the book with Julia. But this particular chapter... 
she writes in the book why it should be hot, which I think is really fun to say. (laughs) And she also, um, it's also really important and can be utilized in any grade. So that's why we chose this particular chapter to discuss. It's chapter nine, and we'll talk about it in a moment. But this the the tools and the practices that are shared in this chapter could be used in kindergarten, in fifth grade, in ninth grade, in twelfth grade. It's so useful in any grade. So I think like the use yeah. case is why we chose this chapter in particular, as well as a couple of our other favorite parts that we just couldn't resist. Yeah. But before Plus we, we dive just into like that, ran out of time with Julia because we, we, did, we talked to her for five hours. So, so we didn't get to awesome. talk to her about this one. <laughs> now. And before we dive in, Melissa, I do want to make sure we give an overview of the book. I know you said the focus is decoding, um, but should we give maybe the topics of each chapter? Yep. Yeah, I can walk through the topics. So I I love the way it's set up because I mean, she gives a really nice intro to what we just talked about, right? That this is just one part of reading, not all of it. So the first chapter is what are foundational skills and why are they important? And she really gives an overview of what reading is all about. Mm -hmm. Um, Then she goes into chapter two, which is more about what is decoding, right? Then she gets into each essential element, which is what I love, right? She has five elements. So the next five chapters are each of those elements. So oral language and vocabulary, print concepts, phonemic awareness, alphabet knowledge, and sound spelling knowledge. So she dives deep into each one of those elements. And then the last three chapters sort of bring things kind of together with chapter eight is using the elements to decode words. So putting it all together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then chapter nine is adding the elements of chunking. So that's what we'll talk about today. And then For chapter sure. 10 is fluency and beyond because you know, decoding, you want, you, you want to take decoding to lead to fluency. And so she does mm-hmm. talk about fluency as well. Yeah. And I was so on the fence when I was reading this. I was like, should we talk our book on our book talk, talk about chapter nine with chunking or chapter 10 fluency and beyond because they both could be applied to any reader. But then I thought we have some really fantastic podcasts with fluency, but we don't have any that talk about chunking and chunking is more than what I learned about chunking is it's more than just what you do in K2. (laughs) And I thought that was incredibly important. And maybe others might need to learn about chunking too. So I thought it'd be super fun to talk about chunking. (laughs) And I'll be honest, the way... (laughs) I know. <laughs> chunking is a fun word. Um, what I learned of what chunking was, because I, you know, in the older grades was just like chunking text, meaning like taking a really long piece of text and, and maybe chunking it so that students were reading a shorter piece of text, which is oh, probably an accurate definition of that word. I'm sure people use it that way, but that's not what we're talking about today. We'll get into mm-hmm. what we are talking about. But um, chunking for decoding is a totally different thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I'm wondering if we dive into chapter nine first and then pull back with some of our favorite parts for the finish. Is that good? Sure. Sounds good. Okay. So we're thinking about chunking and I'll define it in a couple different ways that it was shared in chapter nine. So chunking is an extension of decoding requiring all of the elements of decoding and more. It means dividing a word into parts that can be decoded. I think we naturally do that. And as teachers, at least, like, you know, I think teachers are always like, okay, look at this word, you know, do you see any parts of it that we can say? Um, 
And then it also, chunking requires students to use their knowledge of syllables and morphology and their decoding skills. So those definitions, Melissa, what, what, do you, what are you thinking as I'm reading those out loud? Well, it really struck me when you said, I think we do it naturally, because I was thinking like, I bet kids don't right at first, right? No, I'm sure yeah. they get really good at decoding single syllable words, right? And they're like, yeah, I got, I got this down. And then they get hit with a, you know, a word like remember. And it's like, oh my God, like, where do I even yeah. start with that? <laughs> you know, and, and I think it can be really daunting for kids that are learning how to read to know how to, how do I, how do I break this word up? Right. I don't, I don't even know where to start. And so that's where I think this chunking is really important is to teach kids explicitly some strategies for how to break apart some of those longer words when they get to them. So they're not, I, I loved when it's, uh, I don't know where it said it, uh, but somewhere, <laughs> somewhere it said, um, you know, she said that, you know, the, danger is that students will just skip over those words, right? Because they're like, oh, that's just a tough one. I'm, I don't know how to sound that one out. And then, and then what happens to fluency and comprehension, you know, goes down the drain, right? Because we're skipping those words. So giving them these like tools, like, okay, you have some tools that you know how to decode, but how do I take those tools and apply them to these longer, harder words so that they don't just skip them? For sure. Yeah. And on page 133, I like, um, there, she gives, well, 132 and 133, she gives an example of chunking with, um, the book Captain Underpants, (laughs) which is really fun. (laughs) I'm not going to go through the whole example, but I will say what the example illustrates that successful chunking requires. And that is, knowledge of syllables and how to split words into chunks based on those syllables, mm-hmm. knowledge of morphology and how to split words into chunk into chunks based on the morphemes. So like affixes and root words, the ability to decode the chunks, right? Cause once we've got them chunked, then we have to decode those. Right. And then knowing when to apply that knowledge and use that skill. So knowing when, wh- which words I need to chunk and which words, don't necessarily need to chunk because I, I'm, you know, I'm remembering teaching students how to chunk and then, you know, one, several students trying to use this strategy for like every word that they encounter. And you're like, Oh my goodness. No. Okay. So we're going to now have to teach when we do this versus when we don't do this and, and give some guideposts, you know, not, um, hard and fast rules, but guideposts so that students can then go into knowing or learning to apply when to do this and when to not do this. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you some questions about this. Uh, I totally get that for morphology and I'll explain a little, like um, I think because I'm secondary, right. That makes so much sense to me. Like, because we know that it's not always, and, and Julie actually points this out, right. That if, if a part of a word doesn't actually have a helpful meaning, which is what morphology is all about, right? That, you know, you see the word remember, you know, that re means again, great. Like we know that's a prefix. We see it all the time. It has some meaning to it, but other parts of that word might not. Right. And you don't want to take so much time thinking like, what does mem mean? Like it might not (laughs) like the English language doesn't necessarily always work that way. Not every part of every word can be broken out with a, a, meaning, right? So you want to be careful of when you use that and when you don't. Um, I'm wondering about syllables. Like when Mm -hmm. would, 
you know, if, what I loved your example of like a student that did it for every word. Like, how would you tell that student, like, if they're if they're struggling with all those words, when would they use it and when would they not? That's a really good question. And I am going to refer to my book here on page 134. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I, I I mean, honestly, I wish I had this book when I was teaching. (laughs) Um, Because I don't think I explained it as eloquently as Julia Lindsay does (laughs) in this book, in this cool graphic on page 134. So it talks about applying decoding and its elements. um, And it and has two key parts in knowing when to do that. So the one is the morphology that you just talked about, Melissa. Mm-hmm. And then the other part are stable syllable patterns knowledge. So for example, thinking about compound words, thinking about VCCV type words, then you would chunk to apply your knowledge about syllables, parts of words, and morphology to read. So I don't think that it's actually separate. I think you're doing it at the same time, but you might be teaching it explicitly, like pre-teaching, not like at the same time. You're not going to teach those things necessarily together. You also might. Does that make sense? You might talk about, you might break a word up and talk about, um, talk about a stable syllable pattern now so that you can build their knowledge on that. For example, like a compound word, but then you also might be talking about morphological, morphological awareness. If it has to do with that, that's how I would see it not being separate and being like side by side. Oh, I totally agree with you. I see it. Okay. I, I, <laughs> yeah, no, I, maybe I didn't explain. Well, I totally see them both happening because, um, yeah, a word can have both, right? Like, yeah, re- remember is the example she gives, which is why we keep saying it, right? Because re <laughs> is a really good one for morphology, right? And then member is really great for breaking it up into those syllables, mem, sure. member, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's really, so you would want to use both, right? And and that makes a lot of sense. My, my question was more, um, you know, if like what, when you get to, like, would you always tell students to you're not always going to use morphology because not all words are going to have something that can help them or that they know, right? That's the other key is that they, something they know (laughs) about the knowledge of what the word parts mean. Um, But you can always break a word up into syllables, right? That's what, that's what my question was. Like, is it like, is there a time when you would not use syllables or like help? That or breaking it up into syllables would not be helpful? I don't think so, but I'm not sure. That's a very intricate question. <laughs> I think we can email Julia and find out. I don't think so. That's a great question. Maybe anyone watching or listening could, <laughs> yeah. could help us I out. Did. I'm not sure. I don't think that there would be a time where it wouldn't be helpful because mm-hmm. I would think the syllabication would help us figure out the patterns in the word. Yeah. And, did, and like I, break it down to decode it, right? Yep. I was just skimming through. And, and I mean, she gives a similar word of warning about syllables, which was that, you know, our lovely English language, although there are these patterns, right, our rules don't always apply. And so there might be some times when, you know, even breaking it down into syllables can be confusing depending on on the word, right? So just yeah. being, care- being careful about, you know, n- knowing that it's not a hard and fast, this is going to be perfect every time. 
Sure. But but something that is helpful most of the time. You know, something that is helpful that I've shared with students, and I, I don't know that it's I feel like it is helpful here in this this conversation about syllabication is that a sound in a word could be comprised of one letter, two letters, three letters, or four letters. Mm-hmm. And that I think was helpful to think about like when we think about syllabication and you're thinking of how to break something down. Yeah. Because often they would want to put letters with and with another sound. Right. And so once you kind of explicitly like rem taught them how, Exactly. Right. Exactly. And you're like, okay, well, you know, there's a prefix there. Right. And, but they might not necessarily have the knowledge of that word yet. So they're trying to sound it out. And which totally I, makes sense. Yeah. And so I think once once they kind of I think it takes explicit teaching over time and lots of these over and over, lots of examples over and over again, like you said, yeah. you know, and maybe doing some non-examples. Hey, we wouldn't do rem ember. <laughs> right. Here's why. Re is right. a prefix, you know, that um, and, and then talking through that or maybe some roots that would be helpful, like teaching some root words yeah. that they could access then other words and have lots of practice. And I mean, optimally, all of this would be done in context. So they're building their knowledge. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> mm hmm. She gives on page 136, she gives two great principles, which I think gets right to the conversation we just had, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, build awareness that syllables exist and are useful. But then the second one is teach useful syllables, but don't overdo it. Right. So I think Mm -hmm. this I think that gets to the heart of what we were just saying, right, is that you have to, especially with the English language, as complex as it is, you have to be flexible, right, and not not try and you don't want to overdo it with these syllables and like, well, I got to get every syllable just right because I, I don't know that I could tell you like for some multisyllabic words exactly where the syllable break should be, honestly, all the time. I mean, because, I know we could clap it out, but there are some words that could be confusing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think a lot of words could be confusing in our language. <laughs> I agree. I like, I like this, this kind of general rule. So to, to read, compound words or or multi-syllabic words um encourage students to chunk based on the smaller words they see right so if if the syllable stuff isn't coming as easily to them they could just chunk based on what smaller words do you see that's a great easy question (laughs) especially for compound words right she talks about compound words which is that that's huge right dishpan bathtub those are Totally. Like quick wins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then look for those stable syllable patterns we can see. So, I mean, I think that there's, I think there, like you said, be flexible with it. I think that's our, maybe our main takeaway here. <laughs> Explicitly right. teach, but be flexible in that. Yeah. And don't get so caught up in it, right? Like, oh, this one, this one's not working for this word. I'm really, I'm literally looking at the word right now, sovereignty and thinking like, man, what if a kid came to that word, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> right. So like that word might just be one we add it. We have to talk this out together, right? Because this is just a tough word. You're not going to find a smaller word in there. There's some, some strange spellings, right? Like we, we just have to for sure know your students, know what they know, know, you know, know the words and know what makes sense, right? Okay, this word makes sense to break up into syllables. And this one, let's just talk it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think that that kind of takes us to that morphology piece where mm-hmm. we think about, you know, great morphology instruction and 
how that happens. And I just think that this is where the connection to knowledge building comes into play. And I'm also thinking a lot about a conversation that we had with a guest and I know we haven't released the episode yet, but it's about English <laughs> learners. And I keep thinking about our English learners and where this instruction is really important to talk about morphology and teach them the knowledge of the words. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this episode will, it, it will be out by the time we, this one's out. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're good to go. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, this one is another one. And it reminds me similarly of the syllables, right? Of like, you have to keep building the knowledge of morphology. And I mean, if you try and teach every word part and root and everything, it's, there's just no possible way, but it's a really fun way to teach. Like as they, as they come up in your curriculum and, and in what you're reading and like, let's talk about these words and be curious about the meaning. Um, it's, it's really great. To, yeah. To and in your content instruction, I mean, science right. and social studies lend themselves yes. to this Huge. so easily. And it's, I mean, science, uh, so much. Yes. <laughs> Honestly, this is, this was some of the most, these were some of the most joyful moments and the, the best memories as a teacher, because this is where I, it, for me, at least this is where kids had big ahas. They found so much joy in exploring words and taking them yeah. apart and learning, oh my gosh, this means this. And you know, I didn't know that before. Maybe I thought it meant this. And now I have a different understanding that's more accurate. That's going to help me better comprehend the text that we're reading or the experiment that we're doing in science class. So that's, I think, some of the joy of morphology. And yeah, I, I, I just think I, when we're thinking about older students, especially, it's really, yeah. it brings such great joy for students to be able to take apart words and put them back together. And they feel kind of like bosses doing that, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Little word, word bosses. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I love that, like, I mean, this can start super early too, right? That um, even teaching things like you mentioned compound words, right? That's easy to break into the syllables, but it's also easy to like, okay, dog house. I know what dog is. I know what a house is. If I put the meaning of those two together, I can make sense. I think what this is, is a house for a dog, right? A place where the, where a dog lives, right? So you can put those together um, and teach from, from a young age just, and, and, you know, little like endings, like just S is a morpheme, right? When you put an S on something, what does it mean? Oh, now there's more yeah. than one. It's a huge morpheme, <laughs> right? And something yeah. you can teach from a very young age. For sure. And that takes me to, on page 140, Julia talks about principles of great morphology instruction. And that's, I think you're talking about that focus on utility. I love the example that she gives. She says, you can break apart words like playing, play, ing, and helper, help, er, to decode them and have some discussions about how these parts inform the meaning without needing to construct the meaning of an unknown word. Right. So kids already know what a helper is. And that I think is really helpful because then you're working with something that they already know and giving them some really easy examples and really easy uh, ways to play with words to boost their confidence before you head into the words that they. Right. But if you know use that, that unknown. Like, I'm thinking like helper is a great example. They might know what a helper is, but if you explicitly teach them that that ER means someone that helps right now, they Correct. see gardener and then they can Someone make sense of gardens right exactly. right so so you know you build on what they already know so they can 
use it the next time they see it. Right. And I think the important part there is that explicit discussion and that explicit teaching of the transfer. So whenever we see that, you know, gardener, helper, whenever we see that ER on the end, it's always going to mean someone who blink, you know, and, or something that blank or whatever, Um, that that is important and explicitly sharing that with students so that they then can connect the dots. I always think about it like the schema, like we're building their schema to connect the dots in their brain Mm -hmm. to then access other words that have that same ending. Yeah, for sure. So fun and exciting. Yeah. Um, And I, I mean, I think we often like with morphology skip, skip to those harder ones. You know, it's like, those like really cool prefixes and suffixes that you were mentioning for the older grades, but like, don't forget about the really easy ones for the younger grades so that they, for sure, those are huge for them to know. Yeah. So they have a strong foundation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Wondering if we just bring it together with on page 142, the principles of great chunking instruction. You want to bring it home? We'll, yeah, we'll sure. bring Bef- chapter nine to a close, I should say. Not bring <laughs> Before we get there, I just wanted to say that um, uh, if anyone has listened to the podcast that we did with B-Slick, which are the Baltimore teachers that were working on improving fluency for older students, one of the things they did, I, if you remember, Lori, they, you know, they had groups of students who, you know, some... Some of the groups, although they were, you know, working on improving fluency, they knew they still needed some of this decoding support. And this syllabication, I always call it syllabication. That doesn't sound as good. Syllabication, I'm going to go with. (laughs) I I was thinking, I always said syllabication, but I wonder. Is it ironic that we don't know how to say that word and where to break the syllables? (laughs) I think maybe both. Maybe I can say it both ways. I like syllabication. Anyway, point is, this was actually what they were working on with with those students. So, you know, they were still moving towards fluency, but they were, you know, intentionally helping students break down these, um, you know, multisyllabic words that they're encountering because they they were middle schoolers, right? So they they were they were definitely seeing a lot of multisyllabic words. And this was a really helpful strategy um, that didn't feel right like you're, you know, I, I'm we're going back to like kindergarten, right? right? But these are tough yeah. words. And that, let's help like these are some some tools to help you break them down. Sure. Yeah. It didn't feel like you're teaching them basic decoding like at, right? You're actually respecting them as learners and you're helping them apply what they know to this. Yeah. Yeah. And and being explicit that like words are getting tougher as you get into middle school and (laughs) you probably still need some help decoding these words. Yeah, here's one way to access these difficult words. Yeah, right? I think, I don't think we do enough of that is like telling kids like it is like, the words will get harder as you get older. <laughs> and you might Life still will need become more these difficult tools. as you get older. <laughs> we still sure. need them sometimes. Anyway, yeah. back to back to what you wanted me to talk about, Lori. <laughs> That's okay. I love that. So All right, life's going to get harder and we're going to talk about how to ch- <laughs> how to <All> right. chunk <laughs> effectively. <laughs> Let me just, I'll read the the four principles and then we can chat about any of them that you want to. So okay. the principles of great chucking instruction include number one, explicitly and systematically teach syllabication and morphology. Two, use efficient and effective routines. Three, respond to the sp- specific needs of children based on assessment. 
And four, support chunking with other foundational skills and in real reading contexts. Yeah, the only thing I I really think is important to highlight there is what I bolded and underlined in our notes, which was, (laughs) and in real reading contexts. Um, I think that's critical. Research has shown that it's critical. There If we do a worksheet where we're having students identify that ER on the end of the word means this, and then, you know, they just go down the list and add ER to every word, that's not going to stick as much as if they're reading a text that has the word helper in it. And we pause and I mean, we've strategically as a teacher identified this word, right? But we pause and we have a discussion about it, or maybe we have students quickly work with that word, decide it means, oh, someone who helps. Okay, let's keep going. Mm-hmm. That's going to stick so much more and and yeah. have the, I think, have the utility that Julia talks about in transfer, like transfer of knowledge of that ER ending, of that remembering what that particular word means. And then, then if we have them do a worksheet where they're doing 20 examples. So right. I would say like a big takeaway for me is quality over quantity. Yeah. Which I feel like sometimes vocabulary is overwhelming and can feel like there's so many words yeah. to learn in the world. <laughs> How are we going to teach them all? Yeah. But I think if we pause and think about quality, so in real reading contexts, over quantity of how many can I teach that then the transfer will be greater because we're going deeper and their knowledge will be deeper to stick for longer. Yep. And I think that gets to the point too of using efficient and effective routines. For sure. Um, I loved her example of, you know, she said a teacher who spent, you know, 45 minutes of really valuable teaching time with the word repeat because they couldn't figure out what the morphology, the meaning of Pete was because it like goes back so far that it doesn't even make sense for us anymore to know that, right? Like we just need to, we just need to know what repeat or, you know, we know repeat means to say something again. We just know that we don't need to figure out the old morphology for that one. Right. So making sure you're being efficient. Right. And, and I think one way to do that is what you said, right. Is not just giving lists of random words, but what's actually in context for them. And then I'm going to add one more that I think goes to both of those things, which is I loved the assessment part and knowing what your students know so that you're not, you know, over the summer, just creating this scope and sequence from beginning to end. And like here, this is what we're doing. We're doing every single, you know, word part that's out there. <laughs> we're going to do them all. Right. But <laughs> that's first of all, not possible. But second, possible. Know, knowing what happens in other grades, but also knowing your students and knowing what they already know and knowing which, you know, which of these might make more sense to do with the whole group, um, what, what might be done with a smaller group that needs some, you know, some help to get get up to where other students are. Uh, yeah. You know, just, just knowing where your students are, too, so that you're not doing all of this with everybody if they don't necessarily all need that. Yeah, that's such a good point and a good thing to remember. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so... I'm thinking about transitioning us to some of our favorite parts. And I think the transition will be this. You know, we love knowledge. (laughs) So building students knowledge of um, morphology and how to access bigger words when they come to them through chunking is really important. But some of the other things that we loved as well in this book were how Julia 
shared the models of reading in the very beginning of the book. She dove in with these different reading models that are out there. She pulled three out and then did a comparison of them. And I thought this was brilliant because we often, very often, talk about the reading rope. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's probably one of the most widely used models of reading um, or referred to because it's just a very easy graphic, right? Um, Also, another one that's widely used is the simple view. So she talks about these two models and then she talks about uh, Duke and Cartwright's active view of reading and she has graphics for each of these yeah um, and we talked to Nell Duke about that one and we did talk to Nell Duke, Duke about that one yeah <laughs> and I I think what was really interesting to me is that on page 27 when we look at what the models highlight the I'm pulling it up now the um the simple view focuses mostly on decoding phonics vocabulary and comprehension yeah. The reading but rope adds in a little bit that, more. Can we talk about that one for a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just want to say like the reading rope adds in a little bit more. And then like the active view, I feel like covers all of that and more. So just to kind of like frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> feels like, oh gosh, we're missing some things if we just talk about one yeah. as the like the main event, you know, like the simple view of reading as like the way or the reading rope as the way. Yep. It does feel like we need to talk about it in a larger context. So go ahead. I'll stop talking. No, no, I think that's <laughs> great. And I think that's a really important point, right, is that these can give you a, you know, I, I love the simple view for being able to just say, hey, you you need you need at least these two things happening to get to reading comprehension, right? You can't just decode and think for you're sure. going to comprehend, right? You ha- And also you have to be able to decode to be able to comprehend, right? So you need you need these parts, but to break those parts down, it, there's a lot that falls under those buckets. And even, I mean, the comp- the comprehension part of the simple view, how they label it, language comprehension, you know, that was initially just spoken language. And I let Natalie Wexler just had an article about this where she said, you know, written language is actually much more complex than spoken language, right? So just, yep. just being able to understand orally does not necessarily translate to being able to comprehend what you read, not just because of decoding, Right. But because it is actually more complex, it's more complex vocabulary than we, we, you know, we write with much more complex vocabulary than the way we speak. That's why people Absolutely. like our podcast, because we just chat about things with we chat about it, yeah. not difficult vocabulary. <laughs> right. Our podcast is not a really difficult book. <laughs> exactly. It's not the intent. Yeah. So it's definitely like, you know, if you don't really dig into it, you, you can be missing a lot with the simple view. But it does give a good like first like baseline. Yes. Like, don't forget that reading comprehension is not. It's not out there on its own. It's made up of some yeah. parts. It's like a very simple, which obviously it's called the simple view. Yes, <laughs> I think it's a great this term. plus this <laughs> equals this. Okay. Well, now the reading rope. You gotta oh, I'm sorry. It. This times this equals this. Thank you. I don't have it in front of me. I didn't <laughs> okay. turn to the page. <laughs> oh, yes. We're multiplying. Thank you. Multiplying. <laughs> <laughs> and then... <laughs> The reading rope take makes it a little bit more complex. It talks yes. about some of the different in- intricacies of, and, you know, adds in a little bit more such as phonological awareness and fluency and comp- uh, knowledge building and language structures and verbal reasoning. But then the active view really like takes it up a notch. It's like, we're going to 
go full throttle. We're going to talk yeah. about all of those things and, you know, verbal reasoning, self-regulation, motivation, executive function. And then I love even more that Julia in her book adds two more elements. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, this is why reading is so complex. Yes. Because Julia talks about two more principles, which are joy and cultural responsiveness. So every teacher out there listening is like, oh my gosh, reading is really complex. <laughs> really yes. complex. Yes, it is. <laughs> I would say, just to go back to the active view real quick, because it even yeah. breaks down some of the things that are checked off for the reading rope, like knowledge building, but it breaks it down to cultural and other content knowledge and reading specific background knowledge like genre and text features. So it breaks it down into even more concrete different types of knowledge that are necessary, which is awesome. I will say on the other flip side of that, I think probably why the active view of reading hasn't like uh, totally caught on is because there's a lot. <laughs> you know, I hate to, there you know what lot. I'm saying? No, this is no offense to Nell Duke because I think she's one of the most brilliant people that's out there. We're big fans. <laughs> yes. But when you, you know, it's, it's much easier to look at like the simple view or the rope and say like, like wrap your head around it, you know? For um, sure. So. And I, I think that would be probably the point, right? Totally that, the point. Yeah. Right? We need like, to <laughs> say that this is like these, it's almost like these other ones are undercutting not I'm not saying that they are because I do I think the intent of each of them is what they are right right? it's supposed to be the simple view it's simple it's supposed to be the reading rope it's talking about the things that are woven together you know and then this is taking it like okay we know more so we're going to put it into a different view and add more to it like now we know there's different parts of knowledge it's not just knowledge and Uh, we're talking about cultural and content knowledge. We're talking about reading specific knowledge, like genre, text features, all of that's important. Vocabulary knowledge. Yeah. Well, vocabulary is separate from the rope, but yes. (laughs) Yeah. And then we're adding to it. We're going to to add some other things like motivation, some executive functioning skills, some strategies like word recognition strategies, like vocabulary strategies. There's different so many different aspects of it that and I mean it's definitely worth checking out and also worth really thinking about the two additions that Julia has made yes yeah did you already say them I don't want to say them again I I said joy and cultural responsiveness but I didn't talk about them at all (laughs) excellent um I mean joy is just a fun one because I think well, it's not just a fun one, but it's an important one because, you know, I think we often, especially people like Julia, who love decoding and phonics, um, you know, it's the backlash to it is always, well, you're going to make kids hate reading, right? Because that's that's not fun, right? Yeah. And she's saying just the opposite, right? Is like you do want to bring joy to, even if it's just, not just, even if it's, they're only doing working on decoding, you still want to bring joy to those foundational skills, right? So that... It is not just a slog and a thing that they don't enjoy doing. Right. And I think that's probably a misconception, too, because they do. I I mean, I've not had students who have not enjoyed it. Um, And I know lots of teachers have said that their students do enjoy learning the the letter sounds and how to put them together and blend. Like it is really joyous. And I loved Julia's examples that, you know, joy means or could mean playing favorite songs or reading your students' favorite books to learn more about particular letters or letter sounds. This one I think is 
really helpful for teachers. Pairing up friends to work together to build words containing particular spelling patterns. Right. And again, these are all examples, but so easy. I mean, and I think things we naturally do as teachers celebrate small victories along the way. You know, I'm thinking about um, the podcast with Angie Hanlon where she had students come and ring a bell in her office and she had pom-poms and was like cheering them on. They, that's joy. Yeah. Celebrating those, I mean, you know, those victories along the way. And that's right. what keeps kids going. Yeah. Because People when, kids going. Have, when kids have that, those light bulb moments of being able to read a new word that they couldn't read before, that's huge, right? So make it a big deal so they know it is, right? So they know that that was a huge accomplishment that they just made. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and then culturally responsiveness or cultural responsiveness. Um, what is cultural responsive instruction? I want to actually read it directly from the book because I want to make sure that I say it right. Um, culturally responsive instruction is teaching in a way that recognizes and honors children's backgrounds and experiences as assets for learning. Teachers who practice it intentionally support and validate students' knowledge, language variations, and perspectives. And I think that that's, I, I wanted to make sure we read that as like a, an accurate definition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also that research shows that children comprehend and understand texts more deeply when those texts include characters that match their, and topics that match their cultural background knowledge. So yeah. that's important to say too. Yeah. And because I know education is like a one or the other, black and white, I just want to make sure we say that, you know, we also want to build their knowledge, right? So it doesn't mean one or the other. It doesn't mean every text that they read has to have characters that look just like them and be about something they know something about, right? But that they have both. They have some things where they can see themselves and then others where like this is something new and this is something you're going to learn about the world and is is an, an opportunity to learn about something that you don't get to learn about because it's not in your immediate every day. Exactly. It's what I like to call, and I've said it before to you, two things can be true. Two things can be <laughs> we true. Can we can honor students' cultural responsiveness by um, using texts that are familiar to right that make them feel like the characters and the topics match their cultural background. Yeah. But then also exactly and then also expose them to things outside of that and that is really important that uh, and i think all of us want students to have experiences within so that they can feel connected and then outside so that they we can expand their their knowledge like you know like we said of the the cultural and the content knowledge of the those reading specific background knowledge that's all important to expose in lots of different kinds of texts and lots of different mm-hmm. kinds of topics and contents. Yeah. And, and I also like, I'm looking at Julia also flat out says like culturally responsive teaching is not necessarily her, like you know decoding is what she knows all about, but she wanted to include it. She knows how important it is, but she also like points you to a few other books that, you know, where those people are experts in culturally responsive teaching. Well, the one I'm looking at is from Zaretta Hammond, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain. Um, and one of the things I loved about that book, too, was like it talks about what you talked about, but it also talks about what Julia talks about in this whole book, which is we also have to give students the tools so that they're able to access 
text in the future on their own to be able to read any book that they want to read in the future. Mm -hmm. And that's also culturally responsive teaching in a different way, but giving them the tools just so that there's an even playing field and they have what they need to, to be able to be successful. For sure. I think that's really important. Speaking of tools and giving them what they need to be successful, we, another one of our favorite parts is um, on page 123, teaching students using decodable math problems. So thinking about decodability throughout students' day. And I loved that concept. I love the idea of decodable math problems. Um, I remember being so frustrated when I taught second grade, like, oh, why are we using these names? Why are we using <laughs> these things? Like, they don't, they can't like sound out like a, propeller or, you know, I mean, they might be able right. to, but that's not a decodable word for <laughs> beginning of second grade. Why are we counting propellers anyway? <laughs> you know, there. so I loved the instructional swap that she gave, which was less decoding for phonics instruction and more decoding for everyday reading. And part of that is math decodability. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And just making sure what they're reading in those other content areas. I think math is easy because it's like, it could be anything. It doesn't have to be a propeller, right? You could, yeah. <laughs> your examples could be literally anything. So like, yeah. Right. So make it something that the, you know the students will be able to decode. Might be a little trickier in science and social studies if you're introducing the you know new vocabulary to students, but um, sure. still being conscious of it so that you know it's not you know what's meant for fifth graders, but. Here we have second graders. For sure. And a little it. teaser that we are exploring this as a podcast topic that is a standalone podcast. So we know that Eureka Math 2 paid a whole lot of attention to this and uh, does have that decodability factor. So we want to make sure that we are talking about it and elevating it through literacy. Yeah. So get ready if you teach math too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I thought we could end Melissa and with our, um, with how Julia, uh, says that she is a teacher at heart. And she, I just think reading this book, she's so relatable, which you know makes, makes it fun to read. But, <laughs> yeah. um, there's a specific bumper sticker that she talked about on page 13 and <laughs> it makes me laugh and love her even more <laughs> that this would be the bumper sticker she would put on her car. So I thought that we could talk about it, uh, share it with our listeners in case they haven't yet purchased the book and read through it. <laughs> Do you want to share it? But honk if you love phonics. That- mm, honk if you, I feel like we would all definitely, I'd be like, honk if you love literacy. <laughs> honk if you love phonics. <laughs> yes, yes. She did say that she would proudly sport that on her car. <laughs> yes. And that I thought that was the perfect way to close out today's podcast where we're talking about the, her think- focus in her book of developing decoding skills. I think we should make her one. And then we should, but we should also make one for our podcast. Honk if you love literacy. Yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah, let's do it. That's a great idea. Now that we're talking, I don't know how to make bumper stickers. I don't know. We'll figure it out. (laughs) We figured out how to do a podcast. We'll figure out how to make a bumper sticker. (laughs) I'm so glad Julia gave us this uh, inspiration. Thank you, Julia. (laughs) For sure. Well, thanks, Melissa, for having this important conversation about. Julia's book, Reading Above the Fray, and this book talk was not only fun, but also very cool to include, to think about decoding as something that happens at any age or any 
grade level that we can use. Yeah, because I mean, we know students still need to decode new words <laughs> forever. I still need it sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah so and that chunking strategy is one really, really easy way to implement it for, I think, not only primary teachers, but also beyond primary, our, our intermediate and our secondary teachers. So yeah, for sure. I can't wait to hear about how all of our listeners are using these skills. Yeah. I love it. And that's we'll a really to, good we'll point. To check in. I was going to say, I highly recommend this book, obviously, to any, you know, K2 teachers that are explicitly working on decoding, of course. Um, but I, I mean, I do think I, I would hate for teachers who are like third grade and above to say, oh, well, that's what they do in K2. I don't need to worry about it. I think this is a really good, like, I wish I had had this to know, like, how to help students that are struggling readers, because it just gives so many really quick, easy things that you can work into what you're already doing and not make it feel like, you know, oh, well, if I'm not an intervention teacher, I can't do this. So I highly recommend to all grade levels. I agree. (laughs) Efficient and effective practices. Absolutely. All right. right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day, Melissa. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, Literacy Lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday and share more resources in a newsletter on Tuesday. Sign up for our newsletter at literacypodcast.com. Each week, you'll receive important information, resources, and connected content. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast Facebook group, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast in this episode are not necessarily the opinions of Grey Minds PBC or its employees.